Please please, uh, turn uh, in your Bibles to Exodus uh, 12, uh, which was page 68, I think, of the Church Bibles. And also inside your service sheet is an outline of uh, where we'll be heading as we look at uh, this chapter together. Now, I don't know about you, I I love uh, to read biographies. I've read many, uh, many a biography in my time. I'd like to say I've read the biographies of uh, the great political leaders, uh, great Christians of the past, but to be honest, almost all the biographies that I have read in my life are to do with cricket. I've uh, brought uh, a small selection of them along uh, to show you. Here's uh, one of my personal favourites, Farewell to Cricket by Don Bradman, a real page turner. If you want to borrow that afterwards, uh, come and see me. Then there is, uh, a bit closer to home, uh, the biography of Dickie Bird, the umpire, creatively titled My Autobiography. Brilliant. Uh, I read that on a plane once, uh, kept me awake, which was good. Uh, here's another one, uh, Mark Taylor, former Australian uh, cricket captain, time to declare. Uh, far more pictures than words in this one, but uh, still worth a read. Then uh, one, my most recent edition, uh, which I got for Christmas, uh, is Adam Gilchrist, uh, the, the ex-Australian wicketkeeper's autobiography, some 700 pages, titled My Life. And let me tell you, virtually every single detail of his life is in this book. Uh, he needed a good editor, but um, worth a read nonetheless. And then uh, my absolute favourite, Ashes Glory. <laughs> Alan Border's own story, the 1989 series that began uh, 20 years of uh, domination. So if you'd, you'd like to read that... But uh, I, I've got to be honest, the more I read these uh, cricket biographies, it, it, it makes me start to think, what would my biography have in it? Because I still hold this faint hope that somewhere, just in these last few years where this is going to be possible, I'm going to play cricket for Australia. You can see it now. Vicar plays cricket for Australia. It's going to be brilliant. What would be in my book? Uh, what would be uh, the, uh, the chapters? What title would I give it? Have you ever thought about that uh, for you? Uh, if you were to write the story of your life, what it would be called... Uh, what the chapters would be, where would you start? Now you might hear that and think, no Andrew, I'm not as self-deluded as you that uh, my story uh, would fill a book. And yet we each have a story to tell, don't we? Uh, Details that matter, details that only we know. So if someone was to ask your story and you were to tell them, where would you start? What would chapter one be? Page one, chapter one. Where did life begin for you? Of course, the answer, in one sense, is simple, isn't it? I was born, and you tell the details of that. But every single biography that I've read doesn't start there, not, not one of them. They all start somewhere else, and it's often difficult to predict where they are going to start. But more often than not, they're starting at the point, at the event, at the moment that they think you need to know if you're going to understand who they are, if you're going to understand their life. And as we turn to Exodus 12, we come to a moment like that, the start of a story. The start of a story, not just of one person, but a whole nation, a people, Israel. Now, if uh, if you've got your Bibles open to page 68 where Exodus 12 is, uh, you might think that to say that this is the start of the story is slightly odd. After all, there are 67 pages that come before this one. And if you were to flick back through those 67 pages, you would find numerous references to this people. From the creation of the world itself to that Amazing moment in Genesis 12 where one man, Abraham, is told he would become a great nation, a great people. This is that people. And so their story began perhaps a long time before Exodus 12, it seems. 
And even now when we do reach them in Exodus 12, they have been in their current situation, slaves in Egypt, for 430 years. And yet God makes the claim we see in verse 2 that this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. This is where your story begins. Yes, you have a past, but here is where your life starts. This is month one. This is the moment that will shape your whole life. You see it there in verse 2, he says it to Moses and Aaron, but by verse 3 we see that this moment shapes the whole of this people, every household, every home, the whole community of Israel. This is the moment. And while we're hearing uh, that big claim from God that he's resetting the clocks, if you like, the, the Bible has another claim. That as we see the beginning of their story, we are in fact seeing the very place our story starts. The story of every Christian, the story of this very community. You see, the reason this moment that we see in Exodus 12 marks the start of our story is that one event, one event alone has changed everything. One thing has reset the clocks. A lamb. At the heart of the events that shape the story of Israel is a slaughtered lamb. And at the heart of the events that shape our story together is again a slaughtered lamb. Paul makes the link for us in 1 Corinthians 5 at the top of your outline there you can see it. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. That is chapter 1. And so listen closely to Exodus 12 and hear once more where your story starts. And as we do, we will see uh, in the first few verses it's a story of amazing provision, very specific provision of a lamb. Verse 3, we are told that every household must take a lamb for a feast. And great care, we're told, in verse 4 is to be taken that everyone has a share in this lamb. No one is to miss out. Everyone is to have their fill. And the details get even more specific. If you look at verse 5, we're told the exact sort of lamb they are to choose. The animals you are to choose must be year-old males without defects. This lamb must be the perfect specimen of the species. And later in the chapter we are told that not one bone of this lamb's body is to be broken. As we start to look through these details that that seem all too specific and perhaps unnecessary, we, we start to see our own story echoing in the background. Our lamb, Christ who the Bible tells us was likewise faultless. And John 19 tells us that as he was slaughtered, not one bone in his body was broken to fulfil this scripture. As Exodus 12 goes on, we see even more detail. Even when the lamb is to be slaughtered is important. Verse 6, all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. As the light all but fades, the lamb is killed. And again, our story echoes, doesn't it? Our lamb, Jesus, dies at this point too. Matthew 27 tells us from the sixth hour until the ninth, darkness came over the land. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice and when he had, he gave up his spirit. You see, for this lamb and the story he begins for us, timing is everything. He had to die at just the right time when light had seemingly gone. All this provision and the specific details that don't stop there, even what they are to do with this lamb once they have slaughtered it is, is spoken of. 
You see there in verse 7 what they are to do with the lamb's blood. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of their houses. You see, the thing that marks the start of this story is the blood of this lamb, as it is for us. Our other reading, 1 Peter 1, told us that we are those who have been sprinkled by the blood of this lamb, not just our homes, but our very lives covered in his blood. Not just a few dabs here and there, we're told in Revelation we have been washed by this blood. Their story is our story. And then, of course, there is the feast that follows. You see it there in verse 8. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Now, I've got to be honest, as I was preparing this and reading that verse, maybe I was fairly hungry at the time, but I reckon that sounds magnificent. Roast lamb infused with herbs, side order of bread. It's a satisfying feast, isn't it? They had to take care that everyone has a share in this feast. And once more, here is the wonder of our lamb, Christ. There is no fear that we will run short of supply. He is, as John 1 says, not just a lamb for one family or even one nation, but for the whole world. A lamb who John 6 tells us will satisfy whoever comes to feast on him. All this detail, all this careful provision, why all the specifics, why all this blood? Well, the answer the Bible gives us is loud and clear. It says it again and again. Hebrews 9, for instance, says, unless blood is spilt, forgiveness is impossible. Ephesians 1 says that the price for our redemption to, to buy us back is the blood of the Lamb. Without his blood shed, there will be no forgiveness, the Bible says. And I guess that raises the even bigger question, isn't it? Why is forgiveness needed? Why redemption? It is the big question behind the gospel we believe. And to see why forgiveness is needed, why redemption is needed, you need to keep the two big realities that hover over this story in your mind. The reality of who God is and the reality of who we are. The first reality, who God is, is really a constant refrain all the way through this book of Exodus. God keeps declaring it. He says, I am the Lord. He says it again and again. We're not to miss it. God is king, creator and sustainer of absolutely everything. The children sang it for us this morning. That is the big reality we need to see. And the Bible declares that he is a loving king, a ruler who is utterly aware of our needs and cares for us. That the sun rose today is because he is king. That you are taking your next breath of air is because he is king. There is only one Lord of all creation. He will not share his throne because no one else can fill it. And so he commands everyone everywhere to submit to his loving rule. There's reality number one. Reality number two that that hovers over this story is who we are. And it's a reality shown to us by a pharaoh, another ruler, another king. He's the king of the land that Israel find themselves in, the king of Egypt, who is told by Moses that he must bow the knee before the true king, before God, that he must let Israel go. Back in Exodus 5, we are given his response. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? 
In one sense, he seems to have every reason to ask that question, doesn't he? He's no minion. He is king of the richest, most powerful, most advanced nation on earth. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? But here's the thing. If God is the Lord, if he is ruler over all things, sustains everything, even the breath that Pharaoh breathes, then even for a Pharaoh the question is incredibly foolish and dangerous. And it's not just Pharaoh who foolishly asks this question, is it? It is in fact the folly that drives every human that says in their heart there is no God. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And we perhaps don't say it with the pomp of of an Egyptian pharaoh, but we still say it with the same desire to be self-determining, to to run our own lives. No one rules me, no, no Lord, no God. I choose how I live. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Pharaoh's heart is our heart, a rebel's heart. And we start to see in Exodus 12 that such rebellion is not only foolish but brings disastrous consequences. If you want to see why forgiveness is needed, see these realities. God is king. We live as if he is not and he will judge all rebels impartially on that crime. And the book of Exodus shows how he judges. Slowly, patiently, not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance. And over the preceding chapters we have seen the Lord send plague after plague on Egypt, on the Pharaoh cursing their water and their food and their wealth and their health and even the light by which they live. All the things that propped up this mighty empire, the same things that prop up our dominion. He sends the plagues on these things to declare to Pharaoh and all of Egypt, I am the Lord of your water, your food, your wealth, your health, even the light by which you live. I alone control these things. That's who I am that you should obey me. Each plague is a warning sign declaring to Pharaoh, you are not king. But Pharaoh continues his stubborn rebellion. You ever underestimated a danger that you were in? I was thinking about that uh, this week as I read an article uh, giving the the story of how the actress Natasha Richardson uh, died recently. It was a horrible freak accident, terrible But two things uh, stuck out from the story. The first was her decision before going out to uh, to ski that day to not wear a helmet. I'm okay, I don't need it. I know what I'm doing. And then the decision after the horrific accident as she was still lucid enough to think she was okay to say to reject the help that was there, the ambulance that came. I don't need it, I'm okay. Tragic misreading of the situation. That is the picture of Pharaoh here catastrophic misreading of reality. With the day we're told, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. He is patient. But this day we see in Exodus 12 is the last day. The day that Pharaoh and Egypt are judged. You see it there in verse 12. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Make no mistake, it is a terrible judgment. And it is actually worse than it sounds. You see, we struggle to see how terrible this judgment is in our culture where we're so individualistic, but that's not the way they thought. The family was everything, and within the family, the firstborn was everything. 
He represented the future of the family, the fundamental social unit. He was it. All hope, all plans, all wealth were in this one, the firstborn. He was their life and their future. To lose him was to lose everything. So take God's judgement on rebellion in. On our refusal to obey him, it is to strike down our very life and future. It is the destiny of everyone who lives like Pharaoh, who says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? You see, the human wish is to be cut off from God and God's response is to grant us that wish. And here are the horrific results. The end of life and judgement. But the miracle of Exodus 12 is for some on this day of judgement there was no fear, no danger. And here you see the difference the blood makes. The sign of the blood as we're told in verse 13. This blood will be a sign for you on the house where you are and when I see the blood I will pass over you, says the Lord. As judgement falls on Egypt, those who are in houses door by this blood, the, the blood for them was a sign a sign that spoke of two wonderful realities. Firstly, it told them that they were safe. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt, says God in verse 13. When God passes over Egypt in judgment, those covered by the blood of the Lamb have nothing to fear. And the same is true of us. But not just for one night, but forever. And let me say, I think this is wonderful news for all Christians, but especially if you are a Christian who is fearful of God's verdict on your life. If you're the sort of Christian who would look around a gathering like this morning and measure yourself by those around you and think when it comes to the Christian life, you're you're bringing up the rear. That the measure of faith you have compared to those around you is pretty insignificant. If that is you this morning, if you look around and feel like in the Christian life you are struggling... And if you're worried about how impressive that will look to God, whether you'll stand up to muster, then take comfort from Exodus 12, the sign, the only sign that God is looking for that says that you are safe, that says that you are free from judgment, is not your works nor your measure of faith. It is the blood of the Lamb. Christian, your safety does not depend on the intensity of your faith but on the simple act of taking refuge in the blood of Jesus You need to know that's enough of a payment. As 1 Peter 1 puts it, God has not redeemed us with with perishable things like silver or gold but with the precious blood of his son and he says that's enough. So if you live life as a Christian fearful of God's verdict, take comfort. Then of course uh, there is the opposite problem, isn't there? Not fearfulness but false confidence. It's important to see that in Exodus 12, it's not that Israel was some cut above the Egyptians and and that God has gone around the houses of Egypt and he's he's put blood on the the good houses and, and left the others unmarked. There is no more redeeming feature in the Israelites than there was in the Egyptians. The only difference is the blood. It's the only thing that redeems us, nothing else. And we know that. But I suspect our hearts often betray us We need to heed the warning of this chapter. Have a look at verse 22 and you'll see what I mean. God says, Put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. Not one of you shall go out of the door until morning. God says, Go outside the place marked by the Lamb's blood and you will be judged. 
It's not that the, the Israelites would get out there and God would say, oh, well, you're, still, you're still okay, just hurry back inside. No, you go outside and you are on your own. And we know this, that nothing but the blood of Jesus has brought our redemption. But I suspect for many of us, myself included, that the more days and years that pass from that moment we first took refuge in his blood, we start to think that I'm, I'm making a pretty good go of the Christian life, that I'm heading in the right direction, I'm finding my feet. That when I first became a Christian, I was like a pauper, always drawing on the blood bank, if you like, always needing Jesus' blood, but now we're, we're more of a partnership. God knows I'm his because of my status as a Christian, my religiosity, my church going, my morality. Exodus 12 says, none of these things will stand when the judgment comes. Leave the place marked by the lamb's blood and you will be judged. If you go it alone, you're like some primary school kid with a merit badge for for effort and you're holding it up before God and you're thinking he'll be impressed. He won't. You need a substitute. You need someone else to go outside the door for you and God says there is only one, Jesus Christ, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Exodus 12 is not the story of a good people rescued. It is the story of a great God rescuing terrible sinners at great cost. It's the start of your life. But it's not your story really, is it? It's his story. He's the hero of this story. So it says you are safe. And secondly, it says you are his. Something that struck me as I was looking at this chapter is, I imagine if you were there that night and you were an Israelite, you would have been really keen to make sure it was obvious that your door was painted by the blood. You would have done the double coat and you would have made sure that everybody could see that there was blood on your door. It raises the question, are we that keen to make it clear that we are marked by Jesus' blood, that we are his? Are his colours on our houses and on our lives? When, When you're telling people who you are, when you're telling them your story, would they know this of you, that this is where your story starts? This is what life is about for you? If not, surely it betrays whose judgment we really fear and how little we realise our lives are sustained by this blood alone. The blood says I am safe and it says I am his. But then of course there is in this chapter the other sign, the sign of no blood. Have a look at verse 29. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. It's a horrible picture, isn't it? Can you imagine that moment? You're a father in Egypt and you get up in the night and you think something's not right and you go to your son's room and there is a limp body there. This is a result of living outside of Jesus' blood. It is devastating from the king to the lowest prisoner. God's judgment is impartial. And this is a snapshot of how he intends to judge the whole world. God's judgment here goes through the greatest military and political power there was on earth like a knife through butter. And what he does in Egypt he will do in every nation, every family, every person not covered by the blood of the Lamb. Let me ask you, what do you fear in life? Is it this? 
Luke 12 says, Fear him who, after killing the body, has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The sacrifice of the lamb is for some where their story starts, but for others it is where it ends. It is where the clocks stop. Every house has someone dead, either a son or a lamb. And the difference between those houses, if you were to look through the windows that night, it's not the people inside, it's not their merit, it's the blood. That day is coming to the houses of Ford. God has set the day. One of the things that's uh, struck me in recent times, uh, something that's uh, bubbling away in our church family, is a concern that perhaps we talk about evangelism too much. That uh, we've got this whole year, one plus one, where we're, we're thinking about evangelism. Why are we always talking about evangelism? Well, here is why. God is judge. He is coming and soon and without the blood no one will stand. Let me finish uh, with two uh, quick things from this story. Firstly, have a look at verse 11. Realise that this is a story that has just begun. Verse 11 says, This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of these, these families eating this, this feast, eating ready to go, prepared, ready for the adventure that awaits, the journey. And why? Well, because they're free. Can you imagine what it would have felt like after 430 years of slavery? They knew nothing else but slavery and now comes the news, you are free to go. Free to go on this journey to the promised land to be with their God. And as the chapter goes on, we're shown it's a journey marked by worship, a life where we delight in God as our King. And that's what we're doing together this morning, worshipping our God as we do in our homes and in our lives. And it is a journey also marked by holiness. The the latter part of this chapter is given over to instructions of how they are to live once they've been rescued. And that is true of us. The wonderful journey ahead of us is a journey where we are conformed into the likeness of the Lamb who has saved us. So it is a story that has just begun. And finally, it is a story to be retold. You see it there, verse 14? This is the day you are to commemorate for generations to come. You shall celebrate it as the festival of the Lord. This is our family story. By family I mean this one that you are a part of this morning. We are a people who individually and together have been covered by this blood. And our birthday is coming up. A couple of weeks away, Easter, that's where our story begins. That's how big it is. And we are called the celebrator, but not just at Easter. Every week we we get together, this is what we're remembering. We gather to remember who we are and what God has done to rescue us. So let me encourage you, when you come to church of a Sunday, don't come necessarily looking for for ten tips of how to be a better Christian worker or how to be a, a better Christian parent. Come ready to hear the old, old story week in, week out. The story which tells you that God's judgment has passed over you out of sheer grace at great cost by his blood. And finally, if you're a parent, realise that this is your family story. You see it there in verse 26. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites when he struck down the Egyptians. What is your family story? Is it not this one? 
This is the one you are to pass on to your children. When they ask you, why are we coming to church again this morning? What's all this Easter business about? This is our story. Do your children know where your life began? Do they know your birthday? Chapter 1. The day the blood covered you. Do they know that? Let's pray.